0: My first few hires were all terrible, to be honest. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't really come from a large company or have a big background. But those first few hires taught me what I wasn't looking for at the very least. Our billing system is the best in the industry. And we're going up against uh, large companies who have hundreds of millions of dollars in budget. And we're so far ahead of them, it's not even funny. All right, this, this is going to sound funny, but the biggest mistake we also made was the billing project. I'm Brendan Beebe. I'm the CTO at 4 Golf Software.
1: This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today, how Brendan Beebe took over the code base to bring to life the golf management software called 4UP. All this and more on Code Story. Like many folks I talk to in tech, Brendan Beebe grew up in tech. He comes from a long line of programmers, and he's been building things since his teens. In college, he felt the entrepreneurial bug. In fact, he started one venture and a homemade class wait list that almost got him kicked out of school. Nowadays, he's married with two kids. In his free time, he manages a saltwater reef tank as a hobby and enjoys growing the different species of creatures in his 90-gallon tank. The original founding team for 4UP tried to build social media and an internal platform for golf courses. The problem was, it wasn't taking off. So when Brendan joined the team, they decided to focus primarily on tee sheets, which golfers use to book a tee time. From that point, the product, the team, and the company's success grew. So
0: essentially it's the software that runs a golf course or a country club or any other social club. And on the surface, it seems pretty basic. Like, why is that what we do? And it's because there's a lot to it. There's like the tee sheet, the reservation aspect, where you have to create a tee time before you show up at the golf course. And there's the pro shop, the retail experience. And then there's the beverage card or the snack bar, or a lot of courses have like really nice restaurants inside of them. On top of that, you have like communication and receivings and invoices. So you have this whole like ERP type system that's required to actually run it, but these courses don't generate a ton of revenue generally. So what we do is we, do everything. Um, it's a one-stop shop where you don't need five different softwares to run every piece of your software. You just sign up with us and we take care of literally everything.
1: So tell me about the MVP then. So tell me tell me about how long it took to build and, and what sort of tools you used to build it.
0: The MVP shifted a lot. It's kind of the lean startup mentality, right? Where you come out with an idea, test it real quick and then pivot. So I wasn't part of the original founding team, but what they originally set out to do was to create like a social media for golf. They tried to get a bunch of golf courses on board and get some traction. What they found is that the industry was just not loving it. Most of the legacy software wouldn't give you access to their APIs or anything like that. And so it quickly shifted to just, let's just do the T-sheet. Let's just be that T-sheet company. And so the MVP took about one to two weeks to build. And it was literally an open source point of sale software suite and a open source calendar plugin for JavaScript. The MVP was just consists of building those together to somewhat function. And we found one course that was daring enough to hop on board with that and that's how it started.
1: So if it's a open source POS, was it actually taking money and stuff as well and and giving receipts and things like that? Or was it just a, a book of tea time?
0: The very first release, I think it was just making it tea time. It was literally an open source JavaScript plugin. Um, and I think the next step after that was, I think we purchased a open source point of sale system that we could roll out to that same course.
1: Were you involved in that MVP or was that, uh, that was before your time?
0: That was before. So I came on a couple of years after, after things started to get rolling.
1: So when you came on, where was the state, what was the state of the product?
0: So I came on, I think we had one to 200
1: customers.
0: The company was in a really good place where the market was shifting towards more cloud-based software. And so our big pitch at that time was, hey, we're cloud-based point of sale system. Uh, That's not really a sales pitch anymore, but at the time it was really working. And we had a lot of MVP product. Most of the software was running, not running well, and we were checking off a lot of check boxes. And so when I came on board, it was kind of at that tipping point where we had to start shifting into building quality over quantity and getting past just building the MVP features.
1: That makes sense. So when you came on, you know, what sort of trade-offs and decisions did you have to make in the short term to really ramp up that that quality aspect?
0: So to get a, get a little bit of background about the golf industry is there's a lot of sub-niches within it. So you maybe have like your public municipal course, and then you have your kind of semi-private, like high-end courses, or you have country clubs, you have resort courses. And so up at that time, the plan was expand as quickly as possible. Even after I came on board, we still we had this vision of, we'll branch out of golf. Golf's a really tiny market. We need to get into like restaurants and food and beverage, and we can compete in those with, against the big guys. We were spreading out way too thin. We're a bootstrap company, so we don't have a bankroll or venture capitalist funding what we're doing. We're just building off the customers we actually get. And that led us down this path of creating different products to meet everybody's needs. So the first trade-off we made is we just decided to succeed, we have to pull back, refocus into a single market and do that really well for a solid 18 to 24 months. We said, we're not going to do any more country clubs. We're not going to do any more private clubs. We're going to refocus entirely into this public basic golf course, and we're going to do it incredibly well. That hurt revenue because private clubs generally have a bigger budget, so they can afford to pay more. And so new sales dropped. And to kind of compensate, we refocus entirely around churn. We decide hey we're gonna have zero percent churn which is ridiculous you can't have zero percent churn
1: <laughs> it's a good goal
0: but that was that was literally our goal uh was we were gonna not lose a single facility so product development cs our support our sales was all focused around not losing anybody and our product got to an incredible level in that first year we had about eight percent annual churn. But the next year, we are at about 6% annual churn, and now we're sitting at below 5%. I guess what I was trying to get at is refocusing onto churn allowed us to narrow our focus into these other courses, do that really well. And now we're to a point where we're expanding into all these niches again.
1: So it's interesting because you, you came in and the product, essentially the product was built to try to do everything for everybody. You guys made a strategic decision to focus just on your niche, which gives a good focus to features. So, how did you go about progressing the product from that point? How did you go about building a roadmap and deciding, okay, this is the most important thing to build for this niche we're serving now?
0: In our case, we identified two themes that we wanted to tackle with our product team and our development team. And that was we wanted to minimize the amount of areas that an employee could make an error at the a facility. And we wanted to minimize the amount of time that a golf course owner had to spend in our software. Those were just based off metrics and customer interviews we had done where we knew those two things were big issues and things we wanted to tackle. That was our starting point And that kind of developed into every objective we did at that point. So for example, what we've discovered through interviews was that a golf course owner, the last thing he cares about is the software he's using. He never wants to be in the software. If he could run his course without software, he probably would. And so we use a few product tools that would measure the amount of time managers and admins are spending in the software. And that became a key metric that we tracked. And each development team would come up with ways and identify why admins had to spend time in the software and work at minimizing that. Essentially, those two themes just became the overall vision of the development and product team for quite a while.
1: You mentioned the teams. T- tell me how you built your team. What did you look for in these people and how did you determine that they were the winning horses to join the team?
0: We built it very slowly. Like I said, we didn't have investment money so there was never a big spurt of hires because we were always hiring within our means. So growing slowly is hard, but at the same time it gives you a lot of time to make sure you get the right people. Hires for development and product always take forever because we're really concerned about getting the right person and not just a good person because maybe we get two or three hires in development per year. Um, So that changes how we look for the right people. My first few hires were all terrible, to be honest. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't really come from a large company or have a big background, but those first few hires taught me what I wasn't looking for at the very least. I started reading a lot of books. I don't know if you've read Managing the Unmanageable.
1: No, no, I haven't read that.
0: It's a, a really awesome book. And, and it, he actually ha- lays out three or four chapters on hiring developers from writing the job ad to doing the interviews to making an offer and to like selling the position. I started just following that. we created a really slick process. One of which we kind of developed a set of interview questions that we asked every single candidate. It allowed us to compare apples to apples. It removed biases from uh, members of the team and it made hiring incredibly easy. So all of a sudden we were comparing every single candidate to the exact same questions. So that was kind of one of our interview practices. And the other step is we only hired full stack developers. We never hired, often you, I'll see smaller companies, especially they'll have a front-end dev and a back-end dev and a systems guy and a but our team wasn't large enough where we could afford to specialize. So we always hired full stack guys who had been in the industry for a while. Uh, Full stack has been kind of, has been overused where it doesn't mean a lot anymore, but I just mean somebody who's a generalist who can do just about everything and has experience doing it in a company before. And so that's the mentality we've taken probably since the very beginning and it's worked out really well for us.
1: So you're not hiring and specific, you know, I need a backend developer or even a node developer or something like that, you're bringing in full stack individuals uh, as generalists to be able to adapt and solve problems, is that right?
0: Yeah, 100%. And so like from the very beginning, we may, maybe we had only four developers, but every developer was capable of working on any part of the system. And so more often than not, we'd have four projects going on at the exact same time. These guys were incredible. I always saw my job as manager to be more of a, just get things out of their way. Uh, I don't know if you've read PeopleWare, but it talks about how engineers want to do an incredible job. If you just let engineers work without any oversight, you would probably do a better job than with somebody or a manager being over them. And so I see my role as a manager or leader more of a help them go in the right direction, help them understand where to cut scope. For the most part, let them just do what they love to do.
1: I definitely relate to that. Uh, engineers like that autonomy.
0: People are talks a lot about the type of person that an engineer is and their need to be autonomous. I think it even talks about how if they had did a study where they removed all managers, let the developer be completely autonomous, and the quality of work went up and the speed of work went up. And he was kind of getting to the point where your role as a manager is purely just to remove obstacles and help them get over roadblocks and not to get in the way.
1: Let's talk about scalability a little bit. Did you build this to scale efficiently or when you took over the product was scalability not even a a thought and now you're kind of having to fight it a bit as you grow?
0: No, scale has never been something we thought about. Obviously we get to certain areas and we have to make small changes here and there. But scale's a funny, I think it's a funny topic. Oftentimes somebody sees scale and they go to whatever the hype product is. It used to be NoSQL now it's kind of uh, Kubernetes and microservices and whatnot. But all too often, it's good to be familiar with those, but you have to look at your company and identify what do you have to even scale to? Like what is the two to three year vision? What do you have to prepare for? Instead of, we wanna be the next Facebook. Internally, we looked and the Gulf market's not ginormous. We're not going to be a billion-dollar company with billions of clients. So realistically, in two to three years, how many clients are we going to have? How do, how do we want to support them? And what's the bare minimum we have to do? I know when I first started on board, I talked with Ben Diltz at Lucidcharts. I had a question. I think we're thinking of adding Memcache or something to manage our, our uh, sessions instead of MySQL. And he essentially told me, The mistakes they made early on were all around scaling too early or adding too much to the stack to make it too complicated. And that what we needed to do was instead take a step back and really think about every single thing we ever added to the stack. Early on in a small company, you think, oh, it's not a big deal. But everything you add to the stack is going to add a lot of complexity. It's going to add a lot of requirements to your job ads. It may help your technology scale up, but oftentimes you don't even need it. Our mentality has always been keep it as simple as possible and as little as possible and that's done really well for us
1: so as you step out on the balcony and look across all that you've built with four up what are you most proud of
0: i think it would have to be our billing system our billing system is the best in the industry and we're going up against uh, large companies who have hundreds of millions of dollars in budget and we're so far ahead of them it's not even funny i remember from the very beginning when we were deciding do we build it or do we buy a solution what do we do uh, to how do we architect this how do we build up to make it flexible to all those early decisions and honestly it took too long it took like 18 months to finally roll out but the finished product is just absolutely incredible you know you do everything the right way and you talk with customers you gather requirements and you Iteratively deploy it and you make iterations as you're going along. That was just one of those products and it just turned out really well
1: So what did you guys use to what do you use to to build what you built it on top of probably some third party to move money? What it what are you using?
0: So we have multiple payment processors and so that's some of the difficulty and so we had to build this interface on top of it to communicate with each of the different payment processors in a similar way. And then there's just the scheduling piece and following sound accounting principles, but the actual billing piece of it uh, and what manages the schedules and the charges and whatnot was all built by us. So we were doing ACH through WorldPay uh, and we thought it was free, but essentially what WorldPay would do is they would turn around and just charge our customers a significant amount of money after you tack on all the individual fees and the per transaction costs and it would take five to ten days to actually fund and so we were just not getting a lot of traction on ach i mean so what Dwala does is ach payments which is awesome because most of these country clubs bill monthly a fixed amount usually they have to require a credit card on file and these credit card companies just take advantage of these country clubs charging them like four to five percent per transaction which is just nuts and it's because the per transaction amount is really high. I don't understand the details, but as we started doing research, this is what we found out. And so we really wanted to go towards ACH to really provide a, a way by which they could consistently charge their customers and at a severely discounted rate. And a way in which their customers could set it up really, really easy without having to talk with a payment processor. And so that's when we ran into Dwalla and they offer next day funding, they offer a kind of easy onboarding setup, and they checked off all those checkboxes. And they were incredibly cheap compared to WorldPay or any you know, of the other ones we had talked to. And so that was a big part
1: of it. So let's flip the script a little bit from you know what you're, you're most proud of. Tell me about a mistake you made along the way and how you and the team responded to it.
0: All right, this this is gonna sound funny, but the biggest mistake we also made was the billing project. We had probably been working on it for six to eight months. One of the biggest mistakes, we hadn't released anything to any customers. It was all kind of like, we're not ready, we're not ready, we're not ready. And kind of the opposite of lean startup principles. And we rolled it out to our first customer, and they hated it. They ended up leaving us probably two to three months later, yeah, it was really bad. And, you know, as a team, we looked back and like, we just spent all this time. We thought we were doing the right thing. What, what happened forced us to really reevaluate how we were doing it and what we needed to, to change. There was a lot of different aspects to this project and there's a few key aspects, uh, corners we had cut in order to save time that we just decided to scrap a decent amount of the work, throwing away a few months worth of work, which is always hard as a developer. We started over. It was the right decision to start over, but we wasted a lot of time getting to that point.
1: That was probably really tough. You know, it is hard as developers to throw away code, and I bet it was difficult to even, I don't know, point to yourself and to the team and say, "Hey, you know, it's it's okay that we have permission to do this, but you don't want to you don't want to waste it and then you were excited about this big feature." That must have been really tough.
0: And ultimately, we just had to ask ourselves like, "What do our customers want? What do our customers need?" What we have isn't what they want. It's not what they need. We need to start over. That moment probably was a key moment in which a lot of things shifted in our company as far as how we built products going forward, how projects were managed and whatnot. And so it was a great learning experience and it cost us just a lot of development time and a lot of wasted months that we could have spent doing something else.
1: So what does the future look like for the product and for your team?
0: It's looking really bright. We're on track to become the market leader. We're honestly years ahead of the competition in a lot of ways. And it's showing through just the amount of growth and customers we have coming on board. In the last four months, we've had as many customers come on board as we usually have in an entire year. We're trying to divide resources accordingly. We want to maintain our status of market leader as far as the product goes, so we have a lot of investment going into our existing products and making sure they're keeping up and staying ahead. We also have to split our resources into these other verticals within golf that we're starting to run into. So these markets that we dismissed early on, we're now focusing in on, on country clubs in the private space and even jumping into more social clubs like yacht clubs and whatnot. It's really exciting. I think this has been the craziest year and has been really fun
1: let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you, Brandon, who influences the way that you work name, a CEO, CTO, architect, or really any person in your life that you look up to and why
0: for me, books have had an incredible impact. Just there's a lot of material out there. A lot of people have already done this and I get a lot from reading books. And so Tom DeMarco is an incredible author, probably one of the best as far as like tech management goes, one of his classics that we talked about earlier was People Where. That book alone I think has probably laid the foundation for most of the management type books that have come out since. It was written 20 years ago, but every single topic in there applies just as much to today as it did back then. And I, th- I think I'll add a second book in there uh, as far as like a great business leader and somebody that's helped me as far as high level business strategy for for up uh, That book was Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey A. Moore, I think. But this book was literally the book to read for us. It laid out what our business strategy should have been. It's the book that made us pull, take a step back, refocus what we were doing here at 4UP, calls it, it's kind of the bowling pin model, hit that first bowling pin and then identify those niches that are relative to it. But those two authors together are kind of my foundation and what I look up to a lot.
1: Last question, Brendan, you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it, they can't wait to show it off to the world. Having gone down this road a bit as a CTO leading a you know, blooming startup, what advice would you give that person?
0: For me, I think it's about enjoying the ride. You don't know how many successful startups you'll be able to do or how many successful exits you'll have. And all too often, I think as entrepreneurs, we focus on that exit, the one that makes us millions of dollars but often it's better just to take a step back, enjoy what's going on. Uh, for us, it's you know it's going from the startup phase to a small business and now at about 100 employees, it, everything just changes. If we focus on the end, it's really easy to get impatient or to take offers or deals that aren't worth it in the long run. And so enjoying that ride really makes a big difference.
1: That's great advice, Brennan. Well, thank you for being on Code Story and thank you for telling the creation story of 4UP. Thanks.
0: It's a pleasure being here.
1: And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month.